Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So, if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place, and welcome. Okay, today I have back on One Broken Mom, Michelle Piper. Michelle is a marriage and family therapist based out of San Diego, and I will also note she's also a coach, which I think is really important to know. She has both a personal and professional interest in the area of adult children of narcissistic mothers, and she has this amazing website called NarcissisticMother.com, and you can go on there and get resources for uh, survivors of narcissistic abuse, and her blog is great, and and she sends out emails to you and stuff, and so I, I love her to death. So welcome back, Michelle. Thank you. Now, um, for anyone who's just jumped into One Broken Mom, and this is your first episode with me, I think what we need to do is um, have a recap and also say welcome and love having you here. Michelle and I actually did an episode a few weeks ago talking about a type of broken mom called the narcissistic mom. And we learned that this mom has all these great roles that she loves to to assign to her kids. Um, it helps her with her, I think, her active, you know, master manipulator. And when Michelle and I recorded that episode, we were chatting and she had suggested that it would be really valuable to go into more deeply each of these different roles so that the listeners might be able to identify who they are and where they may have fit in into this narcissistic family dynamic. And so the first one we attacked was actually the golden child or hero child. Now I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, let you know this, Michelle, like I'm still thinking about that episode like a lot because I went into it thinking that the golden child and the hero child were one type of a, of a person that's in this family dynamic. But as we were talking about it, you really exposed that they're two different people that only appear to be the same from the outside looking in. Um, and I know that for me, what was really illuminating was that, you know, I'm coming in off of a, a really, you know, intense, you know, relationship with somebody that again, we, you've always said, don't throw labels around. So I I always like cringe about doing this, but let's just say it had some errors, uh, you know, uh, or of narcissism in it. I'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. But the, the description of the golden child and the hero child, I mean, it just, it really did make things feel and seem so much more clear of like, oh my gosh, not only did I understand who I was more about my role, but then seeing that this other individual had his own role and that we felt and thought we were the same person, but at the end of the day, we were not the same person. And, and, you know, and, and so this process of going through these roles for everybody that's listening out here is because 
this is a lot like going to an eye doctor when your vision is bad and they plop you in that chair and they put that weird contraption up over your eyes. They have you stare at the chart at the other end of the room and they keep flipping down these different lenses and asking, is this better or is this better? And you keep going through this exercise, right? And so you and I are basically flipping these lenses because some people are going to go, yep, that makes it clearer for me. And that, which happened to me in this last episode and some, and you know, other people are going to not, that won't resonate. And so the, this whole piece of it is again, is this clarity, you know, kind of improving our optics so that then when we take our new glasses and we look backwards, we see it a little bit differently and, and things that, and details that we didn't notice before start to pop out. Does that feel about right to you? Yes. And also never forget, we all, often were in different roles at different times with the parent, depending on the narcissistic parent's needs. Right. And that can then happen in romantic relationships that we are flipping around, uh, you know, like trying to get that exact filter that's going to make the other person happy. We're taking these archaic lenses with us from childhood, which were necessary to survive being in a captive environment and being a minor. We had to do these things and, and perform this way in order to survive. We used our talents um, to fit into certain roles out of a very small number of allowable roles that a narcissistic family will allow. And we need to leave those in our childhood or use them strategically. But certainly we want to become aware of when we are using these by default Mm-hmm. And we're not truly in control. We are not truly in the present. We are reenacting childhood wounds, which to me is the most painful thing I see in humankind on a one-to-one basis is somebody getting and surviving, getting out of the narcissistic family system and then accidentally recreating it with their other relationships and, um, jobs and other roles they have to play in society. Yeah. And I, and you know, and today, you know, on Facebook, I had posted and shared, it was sadly an obituary Mm. for a young man who committed suicide at about 19 years old and he had grown up in the foster system. And, and I have this conversation a lot with everybody that, you know, childhood trauma, you know, so different to kids when you're the child. And, and I think that, you know, one of the struggles that we have is as an adult looking back at childhood going, well, but I wasn't beaten. I wasn't, you know, starved to death. I wasn't any of these things. And they don't recognize the trauma for what it was, you know, and that, and, and you, so you use these words, captive environment. And I guess that's what I want when people are listening to these, you know, all these episodes is, you know, you, you didn't have a lot of choice, but yet, man, it was so important at that point in time because that's when the brain is being built, you know, and so what you had going on in there is, is really an important piece. Um, I think narcissistic families make it more challenging when you want to approach healing childhood wounds. It gets dicey when you're dealing with people that behave yeah. Emotionally immature or narcissistic. And that, that triggers you into, I don't want to go there because I don't want to piss everybody off, you know, or I don't want everybody mad at me or, you know, whatever. And that may be more so in the narcissistic dynamics than it would be in like just a, 
an emotionally neglectful family of where just everyone's passive aggressive and never said anything to each other. Is that, is that right? Right. Because narcissistic family systems do not want to heal. They want to survive. And what they survive on is intensity. Mm-hmm. The narcissist is addicted to intensity. And so if you're going to try to go in and reduce intensity, you will be seen as an enemy combatant. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's sad. I mean, because it's so sad. It's the opposite of what you would think. It's that feeling of having a reverse world like Alice in Wonderland. You're just mm-hmm. not getting responded to like you would in a normal family system. And that can make you feel incapable and weird. And so the lost um, role is someone who actually figured that out as a kid. And they have tried very hard to fade into the woodwork around the family and or they were placed in that role by the narcissistic mother because she was too busy um, being attracted to somebody else that in the family system that could give her intensity mm-hmm. or to an addiction that could give her intensity, you know, all these things. And, you know, when we're talking about the lost child role and the scapegoat role, this is from uh, or is highly documented the most in the um, addiction literature. And that it doesn't surprise me that it is so applicable to the narcissistic family system because narcissism, um, part of the symptoms of narcissism is an addiction to intensity. Mm -hmm. So, of course, many of the things that happen in families that are addictive family systems um, are going to happen in a narcissistic family system. Hmm. Now, you know, one of the things that I always have kind of tossing around in my head is, you know, because I've spoken with you about this and, and uh, you know, some other people, you know, emotional immaturity and narcissism are really close bedfellows. True. Yeah. And, and and I think that narcissists tend to be emotionally immature, but not all emotional immature people are narcissists. But maybe there's they they tend to sometimes, you know, share some of the, you know, the same traits or, you know, activity or things that they do. Because I feel like sometimes I run into people and, you know, I look at them and I see the, you know, the, the cataclysm, everything that's just falling apart around them. And it, it, it lines up with a narcissistic family dynamic. But when you look at the perpetrator, they wouldn't, nobody would ever point at them and say that they're a narcissist. Maybe they're behaving Mm -hmm. narcissistically. Yeah. But not a true narcissist. Is, is that even possible? I mean, can someone, I guess what I'm saying is like, I've seen people where like, I don't think they're doing it. They're being manipulative, but they're not doing it because they feel crappy and they want everybody around them to be miserable. They're, they're sometimes they feel like they're compelled by genuine helpfulness, but they just go about it in such a way that it just, it, the results of it are exactly the same as if they were approaching life as I just want to make everybody miserable and make myself happy. Yeah, so the difference there, I would think, is that a narcissist has a lack of empathy, whereas an emotionally immature person, if they don't have narcissism, you know, because you could certainly have both, mm-hmm. um, has empathy, but a lack of awareness mm. on how they impact others. Yeah, because I think I can see some people if, you know, first they have to get through our filter that we've set for them, you know, that there's a narcissistic mother there and and then they want to learn more about the roles in there. And that's why I've, I've sat here really kind of thinking about this going, but I feel like I have seen in my life some people that, like you said, they may have the empathy, 
a little bit of it, but don't know how to act on it and don't know, don't know how to, you know, really integrate it appropriately. And the result is their behavior and actions almost create the same, the same kind of conditions or in their children or, you know, um, yeah. And I think of that kind of like a bull in the China shop or, um, Edward Scissorhands trying Mm -hmm. to handle butter, (laughs) you know, like the person is not, uh, trying to be controlling or, um, harmful but the emotional immaturity the lack of skill is still hurtful to the people around them Mm -hmm. yeah so before we jump into and and dig into our lost child here can you just provide a recap on what these different roles are that you see in the the narcissistic family dynamic and and what their purpose is in that sure family so roles are, are about uh survival we um develop certain behaviors in order to survive um, this captive toxic environment that we are in as a minor child or dependent or or when we are dependent on a caregiver. And so uh, in the uh, narcissistic parents tend to create sibling rivalry by um, using position in the family to manipulate Everybody. And so the most cherished role is the golden child because the golden child is adored just for being them, you know, making the uh, parent feel good about themselves or the family feel good about themselves. Uh, there's something about this child that perhaps reminds the narcissist in a positive way about themselves. And um, this person is showered with just so much attention, resources, and it looks really good from the outside. You know, the other kids looking in see they misinterpret this as love or affection, but it's engulfment and enmeshment. And this is in contrast to the very similar hero child that we, so when you talked about, oh, this made you think a lot that there's a difference between hero and golden. The hero child has to pay the price as on top of what looks like being treated like a golden child uh, and all the competitive behavior that can trigger in siblings and jealousy and envy. Um, This hero child is responsible for solving a problem in the family. This hero child might be asked to be like a surrogate spouse or somebody who's always going to be parentified to take care of the rest of the kids. But hero child makes the narcissist's life easier. Golden doesn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. And that burden is extensive. Mm-hmm. And often my hero children tend to end up with compulsive behaviors in order to compensate for all they were overgiving to the narcissistic mother or the narcissistic family system. And often it shows up in overeating or eating restriction because that's a very socially acceptable way to have a compulsion manifest itself. It's not going to tarnish the family image like an addiction would an obvious alcohol or drug addiction. Then we're talking today about the lost child. And the lost child, if it ever gets mentioned first, would be like we'd all get an Academy Award, poor lost (laughs) child. Um, They learned to fade into the woodwork in the family system, either because mother was so focused on everything else that she didn't notice the person anyway, so 
that was the easy way to fade or it was intentional to avoid intensity. There's an instinctive withdrawal from the intensity fear was there. And um, the cost of that is you can miss out on crucial social learning and connection. There's a higher suicide ideation that tends to occur and sometimes a higher suicide rate because you see more than you say you're present um, but treated it as insignificant. Mm. And this can lead to isolating um, behavior or um, often more functionally, you know, it's kind of crisis versus opportunity. You can also go outside of the family system and get surrogate friends more quickly, surrogate family systems more quickly, a supportive partner more quickly. But then there's also the danger that you're accidentally instead going to get somebody else who is narcissistic and malignant and not good for you because it's familiar, but mm-hmm. you're trying to fill the gap. Then there's the mascot, which is um, kind of the person that'll joke around and just kind of uh, dissipate tension when it happens. And they're kind of the person that's not seen as somebody who is going to accomplish a lot. And they're just kind of, there's low expectations for accomplishment, but everybody tolerates joking and teasing from this one more than the rest. Mm-hmm. So you'll see that as well. So um, those are some of the primary roles that are in a narcissistic family system. And I always want to stress these switch, they can switch in minutes. You know, you can be golden one minute, scapegoated another. Um, and I don't think we talked about the scapegoat yet. And that often gets a lot of attention too. Uh, that person is a truth teller. It's going to take it on. They're like the heat shield for the family. They're, you know, they're going to press for the truth in the family. Everybody else is asking scapegoat usually just to please be quiet. Yet <laughs> they'll feed the scapegoat with stuff to advocate on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So just setting them up to be the, mind. yeah, mm-hmm. right. They get to take all the arrows in the back for everyone. Yeah. Else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and that feels heroic too sometimes, you know, yeah. you talk about that flip-flopping there. Um, now I can see where the lost child, you know, definitely could at points in times have other roles, you know, and actually get intentionally shelved when they're not needed in any of the other roles, which I can imagine, you know, for somebody that feels like, you know, they're in that position, it's like you, you, you get to be gold and you get to be the hero, but then I don't need you. Yeah. So I'm just going to dismiss you altogether. Does that, does that sound like something that you. Oh yeah. I had a girl that she was the heroic, she was the oldest and she was parentified. And then the minute mom had a new relationship with a, a, um, romantic interest, the girl was just shelled and it was such a crappy feeling and it set her up in life to be very love addicted to men because her mother just worshiped that attention, um, even higher than her, than the heroic role. I think you just described my life right there. <laughs> oh, that's so yeah. excruciatingly painful because you're like, uh, I was the most important thing. I was crucial to this. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, situation and suddenly like, uh, you know, I don't exist. I'm, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a very strange feeling. Yeah. Is love addiction something that, um, a lot of lost children have? Yeah. It's, yeah. and, and also, you know, we're all vulnerable in the family system to have love addiction because mom is turning away towards intensity, her addiction mm-hmm. all the time. And so if you're not engulfed over, um, on the other side, um, with hero or 
golden, you tend to um, be very vulnerable to love addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, love avoidant often happens with the hero child. So imagine if you're talking to me that you've been flipped between <laughs> hero and loss, that means you probably have a mixed attachment style of both avoidant and love addicted, you know, if just by default under stress. And so you, one thing that would be important always to, you know, keep mindful of is staying in secure attachment, the middle road. There's a great book on that called Attachment. Um, I don't remember the author, but it's attachment. And then the subtitle is the science, the new science of love, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really helpful book. Yeah. Yeah. And I had sat there and thought, and I thought you and I also probably need to talk about, you know, once you get through all of this and you've grown up in it, you have to talk about relationships because it, that's the next yes. step for all of us is, is getting right. into it. Um, and I, I do know that, you know, the intensity, let's talk about intensity so that people have an understanding of what that means, you know, and how that manifests in a family. What's the behavior that defines intensity? Okay. So the behavior that defines intensity is that there's a craving for, um, extremes, uh, extreme energy. It's not good enough to be the B student and consistent. You need to be the A student or you're the scapegoated person who's causing trouble. Um, intensity is if it isn't glowy and special, you can hear it in a lot of the language of the narcissist and you can see it a lot in the punchy way that they're talking, you know, about themselves or something they're interested. And then the difference of when they don't feel intensity, they're kind of, eh, you know, disinterested, looking away. Things have to be entertaining, fresh, vibrant, neon, buzzy for this person to want to be engaged. And they feel they must be that way too, you know? And so that intensity addiction is accidentally the way that a narcissist is trying to have intimacy. So they mistake controlling and engulfment and fighting as intimacy. Mm -hmm. As I have somebody close to me, people care I exist when that's intensity. And I think that's the tragedy for the narcissist. I think that's so sad that they spend so much energy on creating intensity and it just drives people that are truly capable of being intimate away. Yeah. Right. And intensity can also be just, it always has to be, you know, I described, you know, this person that I knew as, you know, unable to, to live in the, the valleys, you know, everything's like a peak or a valley and, and was, you know, he was on a constant quest to be at the peak every time. And when it started to dip into the valley, run off to go do something that put him back up at the peak, you you know, whether it was work romance parties, you know, just everything was at like that. And I started to see that like, oh my gosh, like that's, that's sad. I mean, it is incapable of getting through the fact that we all have valleys, you know, we have to be able to then, you know, go through them and come back up in it. The other pieces that I, you know, I wonder too, and I think about family systems is, is, um, you know, with intensity as well as, you know, there's no conversation you know, nothing happens like in a civil tone. It's got to right. be a screaming match, right? <laughs> right. Or cut off. Nobody's speaking. It's just, you know, where's the normal middle here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that's where that emotional immaturity, you know, comes in. Kids love to scream and yell at each other. They don't have normal conversations and that just carries on into adults, you know, in terms of, uh, of approaching things. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so the lost child will be afraid to speak up, afraid to have boundaries, afraid of having needs because the lost child interprets this then, um, as you can create irreparable damage by having a normal statement of a boundary or of a need or of a want. So that's an important thing to see when people go into the lost role. And that's why it's easy to flip from scapegoat or heroic into lost. Mm-hmm. You know, you're either fighting the battle like Joan of Arc or you're, you know, trying to just retreat to the mountains and be a monk. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just saying I'm out, you know, I need to go yeah. I need some space. Well, and I know that, you know, introversion you know, is one of those pieces to this. Like I would have never really classified myself personally as an introvert, but I've learned that that's a big, huge part of me. Like my recharging has to be in quiet, you know, away from everybody where some people really get jazzed up and they, they, you know, get their batteries going by being around people and being the center of attention. And so it's surprising, you know, to sit there at myself, go, I don't think that that's really me. I'm not that while I I can speak in public and I can, you know, be around people and I can do all that. I have found that in order for me to just kind of regain center, I I retreat. I definitely go into a quiet space, either, you know, take some time for myself. I I have my limit where I can be around people where I'm like, I'm done with, because I think it's that negotiation of everybody's personalities and you're just like, okay, I'm done. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) that Mm -hmm. piece of it. And then it's run off and go spend a few hours alone. Lost children are known as the mediators, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but they're not mediating verbally. They're mediating with their energy. They're trying to, you know, keep a calm containing space for everybody and that's too much to ask of a child so then as an adult when we have to do it we feel burnt out faster than we would have if we'd been protected from that mm-hmm. as a child that was too big of a burden when, oh go ahead the, well i was going to say when do these roles start to materialize in family dynamics that you've seen or been able to f- suss out from you know your clients that you work with Well, the uh, client has been treated like that from birth, but the awareness comes as soon as they're able to have control over their ability to walk away, ability to talk or not talk. So it's happening before the age of five, Mm. and then it consistently goes. And so when I'm coaching people from, you know, all over the world, you know, you'd think that this, (laughs) it's just, it's not, it's not just the U.S. <laughs> you know, it's, it's Turkey, it's Sydney, it's Singapore. <laughs> um, you know, when I'm t- talking to everybody, I like to have them do uh, take the Myers-Briggs test first mm-hmm. to see their four types. Mm-hmm. And the thing I'm most interested is the IE and how strongly of an I or an E they are because that is often falsely um impacted you get a false reading sometimes on the ie before you've resolved relational trauma Mm -hmm. interesting so describe that a little bit because i believe when the first time i took a myers-briggs test i classified myself as an e an an, an extrovert classic right right and then that's what i'm saying is like i my awareness has really changed where i'm Uh like that's not actually true and now i've become more i (laughs) Uh uh-huh the family system coping mechanism you needed to be an E mm-hmm. and really for your own self care, you have to truly respect your temperament, which is an I. Mm-hmm. 
And so often I, I have people on one or the other side of it, um, of the introvert extroversion scale. But once they understand their childhood relational trauma, they're able to more, uh, honestly answer what their true temperament is. Interesting. So how can the, um, that lost role, you know, what are some of the things that happens to this child, you know, as they're growing up? And we talk about being, you know, and there's an element of neglect, you know, that can be kind of bestowed upon them, sadly. Yeah. Sometimes, um, you know, the lost child is not at, uh, given proper size clothing, is not taught how to do self hygiene, and it certainly isn't being done for them. Um, you know, they can be profoundly neglected. And sometimes the lost child in that role also does not want to pull attention to oneself because they've seen that it can be very punishing. So they try not to ask for things. Mm-hmm. Um, so later in life, that can cause problems with assertiveness and sense of self and self-worth. Um, you can carry it over as an adult and just go, ah, I don't need that haircut that often. Oh, who cares if I comb my hair before I leave the house? Um, it, it can be to that extreme. And uh, sometimes too, because of the habit of fading into the woodwork at home, there's fading into the woodwork in your social situations as an adult. And so there's more social anxiety issues. Um, you might feel less socially skilled. Also, if you're less socially interacted with at home and then what you're observing is intense, the times where you're learning with your peers at school, you're five, you're seven, um, you're trying to join a group, you don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be only able to do it like you observed your scapegoat do it or, you know, the <laughs> the person who you viewed was sucking up, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so how do you represent your true self and meet friends that really want to know your true self instead of what you're presenting because of what you're mimicking? Hmm. I'm sitting there and in my brain as you're talking about this, I've there I've melded a lost hero kind of together. You know what I mean? Um, where because I can I can see and feel all those, you know, types of elements of, of that you know, being back and forth where it's, you know, one or the other at times and all, you know, constantly in a state of both of that. What about a hundred percent lost child? I mean, is, is there such a a thing? Will somebody identify with being like, I was nothing other than, because you talk about, they go, they, they go find other people to hang out with. Like they're just, they're definitely disconnected. Yeah. That's a great question. And, um, I certainly see that in response to posts that mention the lost child on my website where people say that, Oh my gosh, that's exactly my life, which is my favorite thing about the website is that somebody else could say me too and start validating each other because it makes you feel crazy. Mm-hmm. And um, a truly fully lost child that's solidly in that role um, has a crisis and an opportunity. The crisis is that they could then, um, well, first of all, the reaction is to go out and try to find a surrogate family, surrogate siblings, surrogate friends, um, maybe get into a relationship earlier than you would have had you had your needs met in your family system. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that the crisis and opportunity part of it is crisis is that 
we could accidentally select somebody else who's intense, somebody else who's manipulative. It makes us vulnerable to select what is familiar. Um, and then that cements our view of the world. Okay, just everybody's like this, so why bother with people? You know, yeah. now the good side is some are so fortunate and they get the, you know, tag along with the healthy family and, you know, oh, she was my true mother or my true father or thank goodness for that teacher. I never would have blah, blah, blah. And they meet the love of their life in 10th grade who actually is a supportive, wonderful partner and helps them see that this isn't how being loved looks like, you know, at a young age, they've, um, melded with another system that's healthy and um, also the spiritual path finding some kind of spiritual companionship is often a safe way if you know that's um, some kind of um, safe system where you can bond with something that is consistent that isn't going to hurt you or manipulate you and so again you know on the great variety of things that can be spiritual from believing in a higher uh, power that actually has a personality right down to believing just, Oh, nature and wilderness are my place to be safe. And I can always rely on that walk to make me happy or be a companion to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's opportunity because nobody can take that away from you. So the, the familiar, the danger of the familiarity, I think is, you know, something that actually everybody is subject to and not just yeah. a lost child. The, um, so describe, describe how that happens of our, our instincts to go towards the familiar. Why is that something that we need to know about, you know, that is kind of an auto function in most of us or all of us? Yeah. Uh, it's important to know about because it's going to be something that you feel actually a high level of skill at. So everybody else doesn't get along with that really um, bullying person at school, but you do and you become their sidekick because you know how to respond to that person, not to attract their wrath. And then they're loyal to you because they see you as um, someone who doesn't challenge them, you know, as a lost child. But in general, um, when we are attracted to that familiar, it can come out with then getting involved with a manipulative spouse or um, somebody who wants to take advantage of you financially. Um, all these intensity places um, are the danger. Mm-hmm. But now I, what I've you know seen, you know, part of what I get to do in life is not only just have these amazing conversations with people like you, I, I get messages, you know, people reach out to me privately and stuff like that. And I think that there's some people that really don't um, can't see that they are actually recreating a system over and over and over again, you know? And, and to me, it's like, yeah. I tell everybody like, I'm not going to be a therapist. I have no tact for this. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but like you're just saying like, you're, you're just doing the same thing over and over again, you know, uh, you know, how yeah. does, how do you help somebody recognize that it's an attraction to the familiarity so that you're able to move them on the path of like, let's see what that familiar place is for you that you keep wandering towards so that we can stop you from doing that and, you know, get you moving off towards something healthier and and happier for you. I think boundary training is very important and also value awareness. So we all have values, but doesn't mean we're necessarily aware of them and practicing them. Um, But when you do, 
then you start to see people who don't agree with them or who reinforce them. And so that's one way. Um, and then another thing that you can see is with your boundaries, when you set a boundary, people are going to either respect it and find that as a sign of respect that you told them, or they're going to look at you as if, as if it's a nuisance and be angry or disdainful of those boundaries. And so it's good to have boundaries right up front to start seeing how people respond to boundaries. So, you know, you're going out to lunch with the first, with somebody for the first time and you happen to say, Oh, I, I, I don't eat dairy, you know? <laughs> and it's nice to see like, what's the response to that? Is it an eye roll or is it, Oh, why? You know, that's interesting. You know, Oh, I couldn't live without dairy, but I, you know, it's really, you know, they're interested in your choice mm-hmm. or at a minimum, they respect it. And then there's like, you know, huger boundaries. Like, you know, I don't lend you my credit card or you know, <laughs> things like that and how people respond to that. And that helps uh, get people to figure out then, you know, where their, their limits enforcing a boundary though is a scary thing, you know, especially like you said, you're attracted to the familiar. So when you, you assert the boundary, I, I know mm-hmm. that you're, when the first person like fights back at it because of the familiar, again, your intense family dynamic that you were in and you were used to giving up your boundaries, you know, it's hard to sit there yeah. and go, I, because it, when someone pushes back on that boundary, the initial trigger is anxiety. Like, oh, maybe I'm oh, wrong. Yeah. Maybe I need to, you know, maybe I need to change it. Maybe I'm being inappropriate. Um, you know, that whole thing. I think anxiety is like you're addressing it. It's there before you even say it. And oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, breathing through it and hoping they're going to respond well. Yeah. And then what if they don't? Well, that's why I like to see boundaries set as early as possible. Just small little testers to see if the person in, in that you're starting to invest time in uh, respects and likes to talk about boundaries and that, you know, can be very simple stuff like uh, on a low sodium diet, you know, and how does somebody <laughs> respond to that? Or gosh, you know, I, you know, somebody can express a boundary to you too. And you have to say, Oh, you know, that doesn't work for me. If it does work for me, you know, does it work for you or not? Mm-hmm. Do lost children have boundary um, establishment, you know, kind of issues or, or weaknesses and yes, challenges? Yes. Good question. Because um, a lot of times if you're going into the lost role and the skills associated with that lost role, you're going to defer to isolation. That's your boundary, a bubble. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to just shield myself from the world. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> your bubble. I need my bubble. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you're telling me as a professional therapist and coach, that's probably not a good healthy boundary to set. You know, I think all these things are useful if you know why you're using them and when you use them and that you use them um, carefully mm-hmm. so that you're more like a surgeon with when you're doing interventions, you're not just throwing it at everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And so do you guide, you guide a lost child to come out of that bubble and show them how to push the fence maybe out a little bit further, right? And, and yeah. walk them through that. And also honor these old skills. They aren't uh, dysfunctional unless they're overused and uh, unconsciously, subconsciously 
used. Mm-hmm. If you're conscious about it and you're using it um, in concert with many other things, just like a little fat is important for your diet, your old archaic uh, coping mechanisms that helped you survive are go-tos. Um, but we want to be very careful when we ever we go there that we're not just using it as an excuse to mm-hmm. use an old, familiar, comfortable coping mechanism, that it's actually the appropriate a um, coping mechanism for the situation that gives you the most benefit for a happy, balanced, altruistic life. Right, right. So the difference being, you know, listen, I'm, I'm dealing with some stress right now. I know what I need to do is go take a hike, you know, for a day, or yeah. I just need to sit in my room. But knowing that I'm doing this because I'm going to come out on the other side and I'm going to be ready to tackle this thing or move on or whatever mm-hmm. versus sitting on the couch for days and going, well, this is just the way that I am. Correct. And- Got it. Yeah. So you give yourself a time limit. You tell you check, okay, why am I using this very familiar old coping mechanism? And you take responsibility for communicating to others that you are using this coping mechanism. Hmm. Because others perceive isolation, your own isolation, as rejection. Mm-hmm. The first thing we wonder if when somebody hasn't returned our text or our call <laughs> or whatever other communication is, oh, did I offend them? Right. They don't like me anymore. Or, right. or I mean, in some kindness, you know, I've had, you know, people, you know, reach out and want to drag me out. And it's just like, you know, because they're, they're concerned that that sometimes yeah. that isolation means that you're in a deep state of depression, which it can be. But I know at times it's also like I've had to say, listen, oh, I I want this right now and I need this space, you know. Yeah. So being doing public relations on your crazy coping mechanisms, (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay with that. (laughs) It's really important, you know, to help people understand, you know, we're all quirky little individuals. And (laughs) okay, this is my thing. And yes, I. Uh, it, it can be unhealthy. At this point, I don't feel it is. I feel like I'm making a good choice for myself. I appreciate you reaching out, but um, it's best for me to just take a few more days or a few more hours, whatever. And I think it's really important to write these things out in an email to yourself, these pat answers, so that when you're overwhelmed, you can cut and paste them to your email or read them or text them. Some people put them on index cards too, in their wallet or in their underwear drawer. <laughs> oh, just so that they're right there and ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like create a meme and then just share it when you're in that mode on Facebook or something like that. Exactly. Like, this is where I'm at today. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, your best, most trusted people in your circle can go, oh, okay, that's just her bat signal for her process and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you think that there's more lost children out there besides ones that happened in a in a narcissistic family? I mean, it, it feels like it's a maybe a more common or it can yeah. be more common. Okay. So, what other kinds of families might be out there that you may have evolved into the into this lost role that that you've seen? Any family with addiction or an intensity process is going to have the potential to have these roles. Also, any family that's going through a great deal of socioeconomic stress is mm-hmm. bound to have like job know. loss, divorce, mm-hmm. you know, because yep. yep. Just like addiction, it's extremely distracting. And so there's a higher likelihood that during that parents unintentional distraction from you, you develop this skill. So I had a very sweet family where the oldest got um, spinal meningitis and went through a terrible time in the hospital. Meanwhile, the youngest became heroic and um, 
and lost. So if she was at all on the family's radar, it was because she was being heroic. Um, and she was usually fading out to lost and, you know, trying to be a good girl so that she didn't contribute to further family strife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've seen that happen too with other, you know, with other folks where you do have something that kind of changes like dramatically in the middle, like midstream of childhood. And the, I guess mm-hmm. we all want to think that we can just tell our kids to just kind of like, you know, we need to all toughen up through this time period and then we're all going to come out okay. And I don't, you know, I, Again, I'm not the therapist. I don't have the psychology degree. I'm just a learner and, you know, researcher here and stuff. But it, it, it seems like that that might be one of the missteps that we could be taking in parenting is to say, listen, I'm going to put you on hold while we all deal with all of this. I love you, but we're all going to be fine that kids don't have a switch like that. They can't just. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And so it's good to reassure and say things will improve. Um, but instead of say we'll be fine, I think it's important to say, you know, we'll have a healing process after this. Yeah, and that and probably it, doesn't happen, does it? It just you kind of like come out the other end and go about and just status pick, quo. Yeah. yeah, but I think it's very important to get conscious of healing if you possibly can, mm-hmm. going through a healing process as a parent. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm thinking right now for my listeners that are parents like myself that, you know, maybe they aren't identifying in with the narcissistic family dynamic, but because a lost child can occur in other systems under yeah. certain conditions that this is an important piece. You know, you mentioned, at the, you know, towards the, the first part of this interview here about the suicide rates. And that's, that's a, that's a topic really for me that I don't think there's enough champions on that idea uh, of really trying to, I mean, I know we all care about it. We don't want to see that, but it's, you know, the stigmas around suicide and this idea that suicide is a mental illness or it only happens to people with diagnosed mental illnesses. You say the lost children have a higher incidence of, of suicide that you've seen and stuff. Can you, can you talk yeah. about, yeah, please, please expand on that. So people, yeah, can it's the that. imprint of, you know, from that experience, if you become a lost child, especially if it was a chronic experience in your childhood, the message was you are actually being very kind to the world to have no needs, no wants, no presence. So what does that say about suicide? It becomes an intellectual possibility that's independent of depression. And that's sad. So, I mean, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I, you know, you hear everybody, not every, I'm not saying everybody, so I'll take that word back, but you hear people that, that for some reason got this idea that suicide was a selfish act and that if you only realized how much other people care about you and all this other stuff, you wouldn't do it. And to me, that's just like another stab. You know, where it's like, I don't have the capacity to care about what your needs are <laughs> because I don't have any, you know, right now. And so I can see what you're saying. There is that intellectual yeah. act is like, well, then the act of compassion is, is that I just, I leave like I'm done. Exactly. Yeah. And so backing up to the, it's a selfish act. That is, um, heartbreaking. Yes. You know, when I hear that, because I have never met, Somebody committing, you know, who's got strong suicidal ideation, um, feeling as if they matter to anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm at that point in time in my life that when somebody says something like that, I, I almost want to slap them. I mean, I'm just like, you know, or, or definitely say something about that because 
that, you know, that to me is if that's how you've regarded this person in their life is that they were being selfish, then that means that your needs were always more important than theirs. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but that's who I am. I'm a direct person. It's like, so they, you, you get that sense of, you know, it was my needs that I needed to have them in my life to do the things that I needed for me, that it wasn't ever about what they were needing in there. And that's just, I mean, again, that is, that's a sad, a sad state. Well, the, you know, the dialogue I had earlier today was again with a 19 year old who'd spent his life in the, you know, the foster system. I mean, I can't think of a more of a lost child than that. Mm -hmm. Um, who despite think of that message, you know, gosh, I, you know, the state had to take care of me. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a burden on society is how some people feel in that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you don't have to be lost in this foster system to still feel at 40 some years old that you've been a lost, you know, person, you know, throughout your life. So going outside and trying to find a way of establishing a good, healthy relationship, knowing that you may be gravitating towards the familiar. Let's say I've got a single lost child out there who's trying to find a, a good, healthy relationship, a, you know, some partnership in there. What are some things that you would be suggesting to this person? And I'm not talking about myself. So if anybody thinks that this is me, <laughs> but I am looking, you know, um, I am, I want to help. Like, you know, how does a lost child identify what's good for them and what's not good for them and, and to form something that's going to be, you know, amazing, you know, for them. Yeah. So in order to develop a happy life with people that are not in the dead zone of a narcissistic family system and, and to not re- recreate another dead zone, um, because again, narcissistic family systems are extremely isolating in that people that hang around the narcissist tend to be people who are either narcissists themselves or are very manipulated and unaware. And so you have to go pretty far out of your system sometimes to find these um, people that are capable of bonding, having secure attachment. And so for the lost child and for anyone, it, it's really helpful to understand attachment, what your attachment style is under stress, um, how to view somebody else who can securely attach. You know, if you already are challenged with a stress response of being avoidant or love addicted, why add another person that has the same challenge? Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know, if you can shop for <laughs> the securely attached, somebody who is already a secure attacher can really save you a lot of heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, and then always um, really seeing somebody, people who are interested in your boundaries that's, that view you talking about your likes and dislikes, needs and um, wants as a sign of respect towards them instead of a burden. Mm-hmm. Or a challenge to break them. Yeah, which which another narcissist would go, oh, that's your boundary. Let's see if I can change those for you. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And um, people don't uh, have to do all of our boundaries, but they should respect them and give us the space to have that. Yeah. How many um, with your experience in all of this do you said lost children, you know, can go out and find and, and, and get in a relationship much earlier. Do they stay married? Or, you know, is there a, you know, are they afflicted with retreating, you know, on a regular basis and finding themselves in and out of relationships? It's both. So some will stay married. You know, some are very lucky to have found a secure attacher who's 
supportive and happens to have a very healthy family system and social system that surrounds them and they're fine. Others are guilt-ridden because they married out of a terrible family system and they don't truly love their partner. Um, others uh, have actually gotten into as bad a situation or worse because somebody has manipulate, you know, saw that they were vulnerable to manipulation and mm-hmm. moved in. Mm-hmm. Um, so the patterns really varied with loss. There's not really a, that, that I see this in just the 20 years of practice, you know, I'm just an observer, not a mm-hmm. researcher. Um, so just in the observation of the people that I've treated in those years, I've seen a real mix with that group. Interesting. So that didn't narrow it down for me, Michelle. Thank you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so let's talk about your coaching that you do. Um, you know, and you've got all these roles of these um, folks that you're working with around the world, which I think is fantastic. I guess the first question then is, you know, if you had to looking at the the types of people that tend to come in and, and seek out services for coaching and stuff, are they equally spread amongst all the roles or is there one of these types that seems to be more gravitating towards coaching and therapy than the other? Um, scapegoat and hero tend to reach out the most. Hmm. Which kind of makes sense, right? Because yeah. lost often is going to retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the lost person does reach out from that, you know, when if they had that role, a lot of times it's extremely hard for them to continue giving themselves self the gift of focusing on themselves. Where a scapegoat or a hero can do that, you know, and really follow through. Sometimes lost needs a lot of support, and I think that it would be so great if we had more. Um, immature parent recovery groups or narcissistic mother recovery groups. And they, they're, they're few and far between usually in more um, population dense areas. But I do think CODA is very helpful. Codependence anonymous. And in that group, when you go, you can kind of carefully select after observation peers that you might want to develop outside relationships with from that group. Oh, wow. I, and I hadn't even heard of that, that there was a codependent oh. relationship anonymous. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's often associated with um, the addiction community, but um, everybody um, in in the CODA community is extremely welcoming of people who are dealing with boundary setting. Mm-hmm. And that is a major part of codependency. Right. Um, you know, another thing that's interesting is the gender split. Oh, <laughs> I am really? I'm surprised that it's more women that comment on the blog and it is a pretty 50 50 split on male female that actually do coaching. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And so, do you have any theories on why that might be? I think the coaching model, you know, is um, probably very comfortable for men. You know, a lot of um, people get coaching in their careers and, you know, it may be that males feel more comfortable with that model through athleticism and all the executive coaching that goes on in different careers and things like that. And um, that could be why they're more comfortable with the coaching model than therapy, because in my therapy practice, I'm more female than male. Mm-hmm. But in general, what I like about the coaching model is that I'm not saying, or I'm not part of a system that's saying you're the problem. Right. And I like that. I like starting with, oh, we're trying to fix a carburetor and this is how you do it. Mm -hmm. A narcissistic family system is a predictable entity um, that has, you know, 
individual variations that we'll figure out. I, I often call it in coaching, we're going to figure out the topography of your family system. <laughs> and then we're going to figure out the predictable, repetitive behaviors that keep happening like Lucy and Charlie Brown mm-hmm. in the Peanuts series with that ball where you're just like, I fell for that again. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, it's so nice to finally be able to identify it. Usually people at first just go, Oh, there it was again, but I didn't recognize that till two days later. And then we get it till, Oh, I recognized it in the moment, but I still didn't say what I should have said. And then it's, well, lucky for you, they keep doing the same thing. And so you go back and you finally get to hold that boundary or do that thing that is actually effective in the situation. And that's just so rewarding to see as a coach. So. Yeah. And that's, um, and so I, I like that because, you know, you and I have talked about this before. We, we aren't going to be able to change. I mean, it's kind of one of those things of, you know, for those of us that had, you know, certain roles of, you know, trying to fix the problem all there. Ultimately, you know, the key overriding message is that that's not our job to fix that. Like we have to, that, you know, we can't fix that piece of it, but we can manage our position in it and handle it. Um, how many lost children ever even, you know, do they tend to leave the family completely? I mean, are they the type that you'll just, you know, they'll move away to, you know, five states away and then maybe come back for Christmas every once in a while? Yeah. And then they, nobody even notices their home, you know? <laughs> right. Um, it's so, it's nice. And I'm not laughing at lost children out there, people. So I'm just, but I'm just saying like, yeah, no, that sounds about right. No, having occasionally <laughs> been in the lost role. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I think it's amazing. You know, it's, there's a, there's a benefit to that whole lost thing. And that is you aren't the one often getting attacked to spend more time with the family. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the other roles get immediately noticed if they don't show up for the birthday party or the, you know, whatever is supposed to be done in service of the narcissist. Mm-hmm. So that is one, one little victory right there. <laughs> one little benefit. Oh, these poor people, all of us. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's, let's, we've got people listening here. Let's summarize some things that you'd like people to reflect on to see if these lenses that we've been flipping around here today actually apply to, you know, maybe that there's a lost and a lost element. What, what should somebody kind of look at themselves and go, yeah, maybe this is the lens that'll kind of sharpen my vision. Yeah. Okay. So always remember that roles are a cluster of behavior that you happen to do that help you survive, uh, a very toxic situation. So have respect for the roles. And then um, secondly, usually the roles were shifting, but there's usually one or two that were very dominant in your life. And then looking at how you respond and questioning, oh, is that something that I do? Like with loss, there's a you know, tendency to hide. And there's also an active fantasy life when you're younger because nobody's talking to you. Might as well invent up things to think about. And then um, it can lead to uh, indecisiveness because you, nobody was listening to your opinion or asking for it. So then it's harder sometimes to have, even in your own head, to develop your own opinions. Um, and so sometimes there's difficulty in forging your own way because of that indecision. So mm-hmm. even though you're able to step apart, like even in a tour group, I am always at the end of the line or going up the <laughs> elevator. I want to be two spaces away from the rest of the group. <laughs> I'm accustomed to the wall. I'm yeah. not accustomed to being in the middle or in the beginning. So, you know, start watching how 
you know, how you are reacting in these places. Where are you standing? How much are you saying in a business meeting? You know, and then look at your attention, uh, attachment style. Look at, are there any love addiction issues or love avoidance issues? Um, if they aren't chronic all the time, where do you go under stress? Where do you go when you feel threatened um, and vulnerable? Mm-hmm. Okay. And let's end this on a positive note. What are some of the, you know, because we don't want anybody to sit there and think that if they fill in this role that, you know, that there's doom and gloom. What are some yeah. of the redeeming qualities that lost oh, people? So <laughs> it's so easy to always focus on the um, hard stuff, you know, the things that aren't going right, because we want so badly for everybody to know, hey, this could be getting in your way. But let's never forget that there's always an opportunity with each of these roles. You know, the crisis um, of being put in the uh, lost child role also has the opportunity to give you a spiritual path, a path of independence where you are judging what is best for you and you are not easily influenced by group dynamics. And wow, we need that now in our yeah, world. That's awesome. Yeah. Go lost children. Right. You can take it. All of you by yourselves. <laughs> They're great leaders. They overcome that little, you know, part about not wanting, you know, not not feeling very comfortable with being heard. Once the voice starts getting used, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I can imagine that. And, you know, I feel like there is that power. You get to the place of where it you're retreating, but then you're at your place of where you go, what I'm doing is I'm charging up and getting ready again, you yeah. know, and that, and, and to come out there. And that, that has been, I know for myself, like a very formidable change in understanding, you know, of like, I'm going to, I know that I need these things that I didn't know I needed before. And they, you know, they are what will make me come back out like on Monday morning or wherever it is ready to, to go and, um, and respect, like you've said that a lot. It's, it's respecting what those pieces are and those roles and those, and the activities that we've done in there and making yep, them work for been, you instead of against you. Yes. These roles have given you some serious skills. It's just that we don't want to overuse them or use them in reactivity. We want to use them in an intentional way. And so I want to say, you know, we've done three of these now. I just am so grateful for your voice and that you're speaking out and that you have such a non-judgmental, inclusive um, way of talking about these issues. Thank you for existing. Oh, geez, Michelle, thank you for that. Uh, and I, thank you for doing this. I'm so, I mean, I, I get so excited, you know, getting ready to talk to you about this and stuff because there is we're able to kind of dissect everything in and really get into each of these pieces there. And they're just, there's so much that people need to hear and want to hear and don't know how to put it together. And so I'm grateful for you and the work that you're doing and stuff and, and, you know, taking the time and I'm excited to do more of these episodes. So what do you think we should talk about next? Who's the next person that should be on our list here to, to help? Oh, let's do the mascot. Let's do the awesome breaking tension. Yeah, yeah. I and I, I I've seen a few of those people. I'm sure you I mean obviously you have, but um yeah, a lot yeah. of them end up to be great comedians. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. Good entertainers and stuff. Mm-hmm. So okay, so everybody listening, the next one we're gonna be on is the mascot. Um awesome. and then I'm serious, I think we need to have like a dating only episode. <laughs> you know, awesome. you? yeah, right, yeah. Uh, relationships, attachment, how to have healthy how to have healthy relationships, how to attract healthy people, and especially how to screen out the manipulators. Yes. Yeah. I think that one will probably get like a million downloads right there. <laughs> we can do that first if you want. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be a hot topic. 
Cool. Well, I hope you have an amazing day today. This has been a lot of fun and informative again and a lot for, you know, for me to think about and stuff as well as and for other people and stuff. And so you're doing a great service out there. So again, Michelle Piper has a website called NarcissisticMother.com and she's got a email service that you can sign up to do and you send out what like weekly messages and talk yeah, and there's people. a free recovery handbook i think it's 70 pages you know well this is Use important it. it's a big deal so <laughs> download that sucker <laughs> awesome cool well again everyone thank you very much and michelle as always it's been a pleasure talking to you so i appreciate your time great have a great day yep you too thank you for listening to one broken mom you can find podcast notes on my website at amiquirtony.com, and there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kirkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.